Shadow Talk, an information security and cyber threat intelligence podcast brought to you by Digital Shadows, a ReliQuest company. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Kim, who's dialed in from London. How's things, Kim? Hello. I'm good, thank you. Glad to be back. It's been a while since I've been on the pod. I was just going to say, how many weeks mm-hmm. have you been? Yeah, at least uh, I mean months, I think. Months. Oh, my goodness. Well, good to have you back. And also from Dallas, we have Ivan on the line. How are things with you, Ivan? Things are going great. It's glad to be back. Good stuff. Always great to speak to you both. So starting this week, we'll be discussing a recent move taken by Lloyds of London, who will require its insurance groups globally to exclude catastrophic state-backed hacks from standalone cyber insurance policies, uh, with the move actually starting next year. So essentially, if you've got cyber insurance from Lloyds, it's not going to cover nation state hackers if they happen to result in a serious breach of your data. The move is reportedly designed to make sure that insurers are clearly stating what they will and they won't cover. So a little bit of ambiguity there. And as the ability of kind of state backed hacks to spread and cause damage, you know, could essentially cause systemic risk in the insurance market. So this is something that Lloyd's is is trying to get a bit of a, a foothold on. So starting with you, Kim, what are the implications from Lloyd's decision and bar systemic risk, as they've mentioned, what are the reasons behind this move? The implications for the immediate future, this decision is actually going to cause quite a lot of confusion, I think, um, among people who have cyber insurance and those who provide it as well, because the exact wording from the Lloyd's announcement was that it will exclude losses where a state-backed attack has a catastrophic effect. So that presents two problems straight away. How do you define what catastrophic is? And also, how do you know that it's a state-backed attack? Right, We've talked endlessly on this podcast about how difficult attribution can be in cyber attacks, especially when they're conducted by a nation-state Actor, So that, yeah, that just leaves loads of questions and and a lot of ambiguity at the moment. So I think there's going to need to be some work put in to try and define what those two things are. I was reading into it and um, there's exclusions about war in a lot of cyber insurance policies. But again, that isn't clear what is defined as an act of war or not. So I think beside the being able to put a price on the risk that they're covering. I think this is all about removing ambiguity, making sure that their customers know what Lloyds will and won't cover for because, yeah, the the losses that could be associated with state-backed activity could be huge, which leaves Lloyds of London with a huge bill in turn. I suppose in a way, it's a good thing that they're trying to be clearer over what they will and what pay, won't pay for. Because, you know, if you've, you know, not just cyber insurance, but if you try to make an insurance claim in any fashion, and then you made to jump through all sorts of kind of loopholes and kind of hoops just to get to that, that kind of goal at the end, and your insurance provider won't pay out, that's always a really unwelcome surprise. But at the same time, as you kind of alluded, it almost puts them in even more ambiguous kind of position because nobody can't like you say nobody can define necessarily what is a nation state backed attack or it's it's very difficult to define that mm. um, so it does seem there's there's some kind of confusion over the definitions and just as you were saying that i i thought the same thing you know catastrophic 
that that's such a difficult thing to actually define isn't it yeah and you know are they going to kind of put financial amounts on what counts as catastrophic mm. or you know has to knock out a certain percentage of a nation's infrastructure something like that i don't know um i guess we'll wait and see but they i think they were going to introduce it in march weren't they so they don't have masses amounts of time to try and figure this out yeah not a huge amount of time yeah companies who do have their uh, insurance provided by lloyds and underwriters you know imagine they'll have to move pretty quickly on this one um on that note, how will companies with cyber insurance provided by Lloyds actually react to this, do you think? Um, and what might happen if, you know, following March, they do actually suffer a what we could define as a catastrophic data breach related to a, a nation state incident? I'm sure some companies will be worried by this news. Some of the examples that the reporting that I read gave, like people were claiming for hundreds of millions of dollars um, for things like NotPetya and WannaCry um, in the aftermath of those. So if that if those are the kinds of figures we're talking about being excluded from insurance policies now, then that is then down to the victim companies to foot those bills. So that that's a huge difference for the for these companies that are going to be affected by that. I don't know like what's going to happen to them if they do suffer that. Well, it could be the end of some companies if we were talking of, of you know, that high level of, of costs associated with these kind of attacks. And it is a big change. It's a big change. I suppose there is an onus on companies ultimately to do whatever they can from a security perspective to prevent these sorts of things from happening in the first place, rather than just relying on their insurance and go, oh, well, you know, we'll just carry on as normal. And if we get impacted by these attacks, we've got a robust policy in place to kind of fall back on so there yeah. is an onus on them to do better from you know the security perspective but yeah that's true yeah will other insurance providers look to make a similar move do you think well i was i was asking my my friend that works in insurance um how big of a market share lloyd's have and she told me that all major global insurance providers have to go through lloyd's so it's only really going to be if there are instances where smaller, maybe local providers operate outside of that system in kind of niche areas. But I would have thought that if you're a smaller provider and the world's biggest underwriter is making a move that you would probably follow suit if, you know, if they're worried about being able to foot the bill for this kind of state backed risk, then how would a smaller company be able to foot that bill as well? So I imagine that others will follow suit if they fall outside of the Lloyd's sphere. I see. Well, definitely one to watch going forward. Like you say, at the moment, perhaps, would you say restricted to UK companies or kind of mostly affecting UK companies? I think she said it was all global insurance providers. So right, okay. whether that's just those that are global, but for them to operate in the mm. UK, they have to go through Lloyd's. Mm-hmm. Not sure. I didn't get down into that amount of detail. Fair enough. Well, there we are. Well, if you're listening in and that's, you know, your provider, then I suppose this uh, this change will affect you soon. Uh, so definitely a good one to be aware of. So moving on from state-backed actors to the world of cyber criminality and a really interesting development this week that impacted the Lockbit group. So Lockbit, of course, as I'm sure everybody listening in is is aware is one of the most prominent and persistent ransomware groups currently in circulation. 
and were identified in the past two quarters by our research as the, the front runner in terms of the total numbers of attacks. But Lockbit's data leak site has actually been shut down over the weekend due to a DDoS attack, uh, reportedly telling them to remove certification provider Entrust uh, uh, stolen data. So just for reference, in late July, I guess security giant Entrust confirmed a, a cyber attack, uh, disclosing that threat actors had stolen data from the network during an intrusion that had taken place in June. And at the time, uh, they were told it was a ransomware attack. And obviously, this has transpired that this was the uh, the, the work of Lockbit. Um, so quite a, a big attack and one that has a, a lot of significance, given the fact that a lot of people use Entrust as a certification provider. So Ivan, moving over to you, you know, who do you think is behind this DDoS attack actually going after Lockbit? And what are the motivations for doing this? Yeah, you know, I think that whoever's behind this attack is either affiliated or connected to Entrust in one way or another. Because Lockbit, they shared screenshots of the HTTP requests that were being used in the, in the attacks. And uh, these HTTP requests were saying, you know, delete Entrust's data repeatedly. So now, this doesn't mean that Entrust themselves are behind the attack or ordered the attack. But it could be someone who has something to lose here. That is, you know, someone who has some valuable data associated with Entrust. And this could be the work of, you know, a gray hat hacker, a rival gang, or maybe a hacktivist group. We don't really know, but all signs seem to point to Entrust at the moment. And uh, their motivation, well, uh, they want to make sure that nobody can get their hands on the data that Lockbit's attempting to expose. And that's probably what the motivation is. That was certainly what my take on uh, when I originally read this story was that it was probably some gray hat hacker. Um, someone who has been impacted by this in some fashion. And when they do go after these technology providers, you know, the scale can be absolutely massive, right? You know, it really can sort of impact many, many users, whether intentionally or otherwise. What do you think the reaction from Lockbit will be? Are they likely to heed the attacker's warning or are they just going to double down on a breaching of interest data? I've got an opinion on that, but please go ahead. Yeah, you know, they, I think we already, we already have an answer for that. Lockbit, they have already doubled down on their threats to expose interest data. And I think that is probably a risk that interest knew that it would probably happen. They, they were probably prepared for this. Uh, Lockbit, they released a statement, I think, yesterday or the day before, saying that they uploaded all of interest's data to a torrent and they will begin exposing it privately in talks. And uh, then they will be also making that link public in the future. And the group, they even sent an additional warning to Entrust saying that the whole world will know all their secrets and they should reconsider paying the ransom. So they have already doubled down on their, their threats. Yeah, it was quite a, quite a ballsy move really, wasn't it? To target essentially what is the world's, I guess, most prolific ransomware group. I mean, there's lots of groups we could mention here, right? But at least... By our analysis, they're the most active um, in 2022. Quite a strange move to make. Definitely uh, not sure I would recommend going after a ransomware group in this fashion. So obviously, we briefly discru- uh, discussed the interest attack on a previous podcast. But with the information we have so far uh, on what Lockbit have actually stole, um, could you actually try and quantify the scale of who might be impacted by this? Yeah, you know, there are many individuals that could be impacted. So in the first sample that we saw, the sample of data that we saw on Entrust, uh, there's a lot of Entrust US employees data being exposed. Uh, we also saw credit card information from Ireland. 
There's files relating to forensic reports and more. There's financial data, HR data, and uh, things are not really looking very good for them right now. And as it happens with most ransomware attacks, the biggest victims are usually the individuals who get their information exposed, as well as the customers and partners of the victim. And depending on the type of data that it, that is exposed, threat actors could use the, that exposed information to conduct conduct further attacks, and this could end up snowballing into a much bigger incident. And uh, another factor about this whole situation is that Lockbit, they said that they learned a valuable lesson from this incident. They have strengthened their defenses, and they also said that they plan to begin using triple extortion on their victims, that is, encryption, data leakages, and DDoS attacks because they said that they felt the power of DDoS and how stressful it can be. And now they want to use it against other victims as well. Yeah, I I remember we discussed triple extortion in the past um, almost as a, a medium for bringing companies to the negotiation table. So they've kind of they've done their encryption angle. They've, they've stole data, they've, they've breached it. Companies are still not paying ransom or they're not returning, I guess, the calls of Lockbit, not returning uh, communication. So this DDoS is almost kind of a, an additional method to extort pressure on the victim. Is this something you, you think we'll see more from other ransomware groups, kind of common tactic going forward? Yeah, you know, it's not a new tactic. I remember Avedon was pretty popular on using DDoS attacks to get victims to talk to them. And I believe some Suncrypt also did it. And I believe Revel or Revo may, may also have done it for a little bit. It really depends on how effective these DDoS attacks are. There's a lot of times when these groups will try to launch DDoS attacks, but they're not really effective. They're easily mitigated. But if they are strong DDoS attacks that are hard to mitigate and they're having taking systems down, then it could definitely help them to get victims to reconsider having those negotiations. I need to remember uh, ringing business partners as well. That was another tactic that was used, you know, just another kind of method of putting that pressure on them to to pick up the phone and start paying them, really. So... Yeah, really, really interesting. Thanks very much. We'll move on to the the last item for today, uh, which is also related to state-sponsored activity from an Iranian group called Charming Kitten, who've been identified using a new tool to download email messages from targeted Gmail, Microsoft Outlook, and Yahoo accounts. So for those of you who still use Yahoo, the name of the utility is Hyperscraper. And like many of the Threat, uh, tools used by Charming Kitten within their operations is far from sophisticated, but its lack of technical complexity is rather balanced by its effectiveness, allowing the hackers to steal a victim's inbox without leaving you know too many hints of the the intrusion. So, Kim, could you provide us with you know some further details on Charming Kitten and what this new tool enables them to do? So, Charming Kitten is another name for APT thirty five. And like you said, they that group is an advanced persistent threat group that has been associated with the Iranian state. And Charming Kitten conducts information gathering campaigns and mostly against entities in the US, the UK, and also Middle Eastern countries. Interestingly about this group is that they tend to target individuals rather than organizations or governments. So it's journalists or dissidents um, or just anybody who is critical of the Iranian regime, which again just demonstrates their affiliation with the state itself. So 
Charming Kitten will typically try and trick victims into visiting malicious websites. So using social engineering, like pretending to be an important individual or, you know, kind of a contact of someone to get them to visit the website. And then Charming Kitten will use that website to either harvest the credentials of those individuals for further compromise or they'll download malware onto the victim's device um, to give them further access. So once Charming Kitten get onto someone's machine, that's where Hyperscraper comes in and it helps the group to steal email data, which they can then store on their local machine after they've harvested those credentials or downloaded malware to get them into the email account in the first place. And so once it's in, Hyperscraper will change the language settings on the email account to English, and then it iterates through all of the mailbox contents, individually downloading each message as a .eml file, stores those on the local computer so it doesn't actually send that information back to the command and control server, just kind of tells the C2 that, yeah, I've done the job, but all that data is stored locally, which um, I assume is for more security. And then at the end, once Hyperscraper has, has grabbed all of those messages, it changes the language settings back to the original. Um, it will delete any kind of security alerts that the webmail provider has sent to that email account. You know, hey, here's a new login. Those alerts that would tell you that someone's been in your account when you haven't been in there. And then also it, it leaves the messages as they were found as well. So if if an email was unread, it will remain unread, even though it's been downloaded by Hyperscraper. That's fascinating. Yeah, you can clearly see the, the obfuscation methods it's using there to try and avoid detection uh, for people who've been affected by this. Rather bizarre that it changes them to English as well. It's kind of strange. Yeah, there was no explanation as to why it was English. Mm. You would have thought they would translate it into to Farsi, I'd imagine, and then push that back into the original language, but... For whatever reason, it goes into English. Um, what are Charming Kitten's motivations, generally speaking? I know you've kind of covered this a little. And, you know, who who might it be used against? Is there any possibility this could be used in a, a wider sphere? You know, perhaps targeting foreign nationals or anything of that nature? Yeah. So, yeah, motivations, as I said, information gathering. So for all groups linked to the Iranian state, that will typically be two or three purposes really so to retaliate against sanctions that are imposed against Iran um, to retaliate against any previous attacks so we see a lot of cat and mouse cyber attacks between Iran and Israel and they also are conducting information gathering to try and establish their dominance in the Middle East um, so in the original report that was written by Google they have observed Hyperscraper being used on less than 12 Gmail accounts at the moment. So that seems quite targeted. And all of those Gmail accounts belong to users in Iran. So it seems like it's kind of being used as like a, a local surveillance type in a local surveillance type campaign at the moment. Um, and as I said before, Charming Kitten do tend to restrict campaigns to those who don't agree with the Iranian state. So I think in that respect, it will still be used in quite a controlled manner. But, 
you know, we, especially with Iranian groups, they share infrastructure, they share tools. So it, it could end up being used against a wider variety of, of targets in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A, a, a rather localized threat at the moment against, like you say, dissidents, you know, journalists who are critical of the state, but the possibility could fall into the hands of, of other groups who might be, you know, more outward looking. I seem to remember, you know, obviously when um, the uh, IRGC general was named Soleimani was assassinated, you know, there's a lot of these Iranian groups targeting kind of not destructive attacks, but uh, retaliatory attacks. And this is the sort of thing that could fall into the hands of, of groups conducting that sort of thing, I guess. Question a lot to pose to both of you. I guess I'll start with you, Kim. So we obviously talk extensively about you know Russia and China, ransomware groups. But where do you think Iranian threat groups kind of sit in the sort of pyramid of, of cyber threats? So Iranian groups are typically less technically capable than those associated with the PRC in Russia. So like you mentioned with Charming Kitten, they tend to use quite simple tools and simple tactics, but that is actually why their attacks are successful because they're keeping the tools simple, but they are capable enough to use those tools to get past even the most organized defenses. And these groups are increasingly improving their capabilities as well. So yeah, although they kind of rest do still rightly rank behind Russia and China in terms of how capable and how much of a threat they pose. It's it's a constantly growing threat. And should these Iranian groups turn their attention to an audience outside of the countries that have ge- geopolitical tensions with Iran, so namely the US, some some European countries, they have the they have the capability to conduct harm on the same level as the PRC actors that we see just the intent isn't there at the moment that's really interesting and what a comprehensive answer thank you very much um Ivan how are you going to top that one anything further to add on that he's in Russian APTs where Russians are they're usually can be financially motivated of attacks and then Chinese they're more interested in espionage related attacks I think Iran kind of falls more into that that branch of espionage. And like Kim said, they're not as technically sophisticated as, you know, Chinese APTs or Russian APTs. But I think we have seen from, you know, previous campaigns, not only APT groups, but also just extortion groups. A lot of them simply rely on basic social engineering tactics, such as lapses. And they have been highly successful in causing as much damage as those highly sophisticated threat groups. So, we may see Chinese APTs getting inside systems through zero-day vulnerabilities. Iranian, probably going to be using a lot of social engineering. But at the end of the day, they all can achieve the same goal, which is getting inside your system, stealing your data, etc. And it shows us that, you know, even the most basic type of attacks can still be as dangerous. It can be very dangerous to security teams nowadays. Which is why it's important to stay on top of those basic cybersecurity hygiene principles that we we bang on about on this podcast at all times because it can make the difference in, in keeping these actors out. Thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate your inputs, uh, both of you today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. So we'll end the podcast there. Just to mention a couple of blogs that we've issued this week. 
There's the monthly vulnerability roundup, which details all of the recently disclosed CVEs that you need to be aware of, including a breakdown of this month's Patch Tuesday update from Microsoft. And we also have the What We're Reading Right Now blog, uh, which we issue on a monthly basis, uh, this time going through a new attack framework called the Manjisarka, and also research papers from Sophos in identifying the curse of having multiple attackers targeting you at the same time, which is actually an increasingly common thing, uh, and also the, the hyperscraper tool that we uh, we just discussed. Um, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for joining us. Stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.